going to be dealing with what I believe really is a crescendo in our study of the attributes of God. Now, I, I have to admit, though, that it seems like every week as we go through the attributes of God, there's another crescendo. And I know that in my own study, uh, I've just found it awe-inspiring to see who God is in a fresh way. And, and it's my prayer each week that, that each one of us will, will just get a glimpse of God's glory as we, as we study his attributes together. And I must confess that even, I'm probably going to have a hard time holding it together this week, just to be thinking about the holiness of our God. If I'm starting now, we're going to be in trouble. <laughs> but it's just such an amazing privilege to be able to worship the most holy God. Let's go to him in prayer. Holy God. Holy God. When we say these things, we are speaking of what we know so little of. But Lord, we thank you that you are revealing your holiness to us in your word, by your spirit, in the person of your son. So Lord, I pray that by your spirit that you will give us eyes to see and hearts to receive minds to understand in whatever limited way our feeble minds can understand your holiness. Lord, and I pray that we would come away changed. Lord, I pray that we would be like Moses when he came down the mountain whose face shone from being in your holy presence. Lord, would you do that on us this morning by your spirit for your glory? I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I'd like to, to read for us the parallel passage from what Dave, of what Dave read to us this morning. There from, from Revelation chapter 4, we first hear these words proclaimed, in Isaiah chapter 6. So please, if you will, turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of the one who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal 
that he'd taken with tongs from the altar, and he had touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin has been atoned for. When the seraphim called out to one another, declaring the holiness of the Lord, it was not enough just to say it once. They said it three times. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Stephen Charnock says that holiness is an excellency above God's other perfections. That holiness is God's glory and his beauty. As it is the glory of the Godhead, so it is the glory of every perfection of the Godhead. All his power is the strength of them, and so his holiness is the beauty of them. So God's holiness is the beauty of all of his other attributes. And I want to ask you this morning, have you ever stopped to consider the beauty of God's holiness? The beauty of God's holiness. And, and sadly, I know this is true of me, that, that we don't do it as often as we should. So which of God's attributes do you think of most often? I'd say you're probably most likely to, to come back again and again to think of God's love. To think of God's love, and that's glorious. To think of, of God's love, to think of any of God's perfections, to think of any of God's attributes is a most worthwhile pursuit. But we need to realize that, that God's love without his holiness would cease to be glorious. That God's love without his holiness would cease to be glorious. And the same is true for each of his attributes. God's power without his holiness would be monstrous. And God's justice without his holiness would be volatile. So each of God's attributes has their beauty in his holiness. Now, people talk a lot about holiness, but, but few really have any idea what holiness really means. And, and holiness, holy, is, is even a word that is often misunderstood and abused in our culture. So when, when somebody says, holy cow, they're, they're not just making some vague reference to Hinduism. They're not just, just talking about the, the bitterly ironic reverence for the bovine that we see in India. I mean, here we have a country where millions are starving and there is food walking around them all the time. And we sh it just shows that these people are being mocked. But that's not the worst reason that the term holy being used in this way, it's not the most horrible reason. When you link holiness 
with something that is profane, it is an assault on the character of God himself, an assault on the Lord, the Holy One, the King of glory. But when we talk about about God's holiness, we're really talking about something, as I said from the outset, that we really can't understand. God's holiness is something that we really don't have an adequate frame of reference for. God's holiness is something that is utterly beyond us. We just cannot comprehend it. Now, I've had some really interesting discussions over the past few weeks as people have, have grappled with the concept of God's immutability or his eternality or his omnipotence or his omniscience. And people are wrestling with these things, and these things are difficult to understand. But, beloved, if it is true for those characteristics of God, it is absolutely true for God's holiness. That God's holiness is completely and utterly incomprehensible. A.W. Tozer said that we know nothing of the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The natural man is blind to it. He may fear God's power and admire his wisdom, but his holiness he cannot even imagine. We cannot grasp the true meaning of divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree that we are capable of. God's holiness is, is not simply the best that we know infinitely bettered. It's incomprehensible. So why then are we talking about it? Why would I even choose to take up the challenge of of presenting a series through God's attributes, knowing full well that I am incapable of adequately describing God's character and also knowing full well that we are completely unable to comprehend it? Well, I spoke about this when I first began this study on the attributes of God. Because to study God's attributes is the most worthwhile thing that we can do, knowing that we're never going to really get it. But we strive to know. We strive to know because God, the holy God, is the one thing that is really worth knowing. And as Tozer said, that the the most important thing about us is what we believe about God. So we study these things knowing that we're not going to know. But also, we study these things knowing that we will become changed. We're going to be changed as we study the holiness of God. It's just a necessary part It's a necessary aspect of this study. When you behold God's face, you cannot come away unchanged. Paul Washer speaks of of somebody whose life and profession not adding up. He, He talks about a, he said if he was going to come and speak at a conference and he arrived 45 minutes late for the conference, and, and then said to, the, said to the, the man who was heading up the conference, he said, I, I'm, I, I'm sorry that I'm late, but when I was on my way here, I had a flat tire, and, and 
as I was changing the tire, one of the, one of the nuts fell off and rolled out into the street. And absentmindedly, I went into the street to, to pick up the nut and looked up to see a logging truck headed right for me. And I was hit by this logging truck. And that's why I'm late, because I was hit by a logging truck. And it said the man would then look at, at Paul Washer and say, you are either a liar or you are insane. You cannot come away from an encounter with a logging truck and not be somehow changed. Likewise, brothers and sisters, we cannot come away from an encounter with the holy God and, and not somehow be changed. Changed in ways that will continue to bear fruit in our lives and it will echo on into eternity. When we examine the attributes of God, we will change. We are horribly, horribly nearsighted. And we tend to see things through our filter, through the, the filter of selfishness and our sin. But the study of God is the great corrective. When we study God for who he is, we begin to see ourselves more clearly. When I was talking with Jane yesterday about, about the, the difficulty in trying to present these things, she was, was telling me about a, a similar struggle that she had when she was studying through the book uh, the knowledge of the Ho knowledge of the holy by A.W. Tozer, and he, he talks about some of these same things. And she said what she realized is that in the face of of her unholiness, she was better able to see God's holiness. That even though God's holiness was something that she was not really able to comprehend, she she can understand her unholiness and that provides a backdrop backdrop in which she is better able to able to see God's holiness it's like the flip side of what happened with Isaiah there in Isaiah chapter 6 when he heard the seraphim calling out to each other holy 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 his response was woe is me for i am lost I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So, so Isaiah sees his weakness. He, says, he sees his unholiness in the light of God's holiness. But something that I, I discovered in my study is that that even the seraphim, before the face of God's holiness, need to cover themselves. Beloved, these are sinless creatures. They have no sin. But before God's holiness, they realize the need to, to cover themselves. So they cover themselves there with their wings. This morning, I pray that we are going to get a glimpse, even just a glimpse of God's holiness as we see how he is holy in his person and he is holy in his works. And then I pray that we will see how we are to be holy in our person and holy in our works. 
And again, we're not going to be able to comprehend these things without the help of the Holy Spirit, without guidance from God's Holy Bible. So, so moving forward here, completely reliant and seeking to understand who God is by his word, I pray that his spirit would do a work in our hearts. So first of all, God is holy in his person and in his works. So the, the Hebrew word and the Greek word for which we, we translate holy essentially means separate. They both mean separate. And to be holy is to be, to be set apart, to be completely other from all that is common or profane. And there's actually two senses of this separation. There is a relational separation as well as a moral separation. And it's actually the first sense, the relational separation that we were referring to when we, when we speak of God's holiness. It refers to God's intrinsic unapproachableness, that is his glorious transcendence, so that the, the creator is separate from and completely above his creation and his creatures. And again, Paul Washer explains that God's holiness is the preeminent attribute of God and the greatest truth that we can ever learn about him, that every divine attribute can be studied as simply an expression of his holiness and that it demonstrates that he is distinct from his creation, absolutely separate and a completely different being. And Tozer says that, that holy is the way God is. To be holy, he does not conform to a standard. He is that standard. He is absolutely holy with an infinite, incomprehensible fullness of purity that is incapable of being anything other than it is. And because he is holy, his attributes are holy. That is, whatever we think of as belonging to God must be thought of as holy. Gerhardus Vos said similarly that God's Holiness is not really an attribute to be coordinated with the other attributes and distinguished in the divine nature. He is holy in everything that characterizes him and reveals him. Holiness, goodness, and grace, no less than in his righteousness and wrath. So in other words, God's omniscience is holy. God's omnipresence is holy. God's omnipotence is holy. His justice is holy, and so on. And it's from, from this sense, this this relational separateness of God's holiness that we get the second sense of God's holiness, God's moral holiness, his ethical holiness or purity. God is morally pure in his character and morally pure in his deeds. Simon Kistemaker says that God's that the descriptive adjective holy reveals God's absolute purity. This adjective describes the state and action of God's being. God is sinless, cannot be influenced by sin, and in his holiness destroys sin. Now, I, I simply don't have the words to explain this. That God is, is completely separate from sin. That the, the, the best 
metaphor I think that we can use for it is, is found in 1 John 1, 5, where the, the Apostle John says, this is the message that we have heard from him. And we proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Light is, is not just on the opposite end of the spectrum from darkness. It is a completely different thing. It is a whole new category. God's light is in a completely different realm than any darkness, than any sin. So we, we need to see our unholiness when we see God's holiness. And when we see our unholiness, we are better able to see God's holiness, God's separateness. R.C. Sproul asks, why three times holy? Why is God referred to as three times holy? In, in the ancient Near East, to repeat something was in, the, in a similar fashion when we use our computers and we, we use bold face or capitals or we underline. Quite often throughout Scripture, we see things that are emphasized, emphasized by, by repetition. Jesus did this again where he said, truly, truly, I say to you. He was emphasizing something. But to my knowledge, the, the only time that something is repeated three times like this in Scripture is holy, holy, holy. So Sproul says the angels are not content with holy. They're not even content with the emphasis of holy, holy. They must say it three times. Holy, holy, holy. They take it to the third degree, the superlative degree. No other attribute of God is praised like this. No, not love or mercy or justice or sovereignty. Just holy. But again, we come face to face with something that we don't really understand. And so it might be helpful here just for a moment to consider the temple. To consider the temple. The, the temple commanded by God to, to be built in the midst of Israel. Israel was a nation that was separate from the other nations around it. It was, it was separate. Israel was separate as the holy people of God. The temple was in Jerusalem, which is itself referred to as the holy city separate from the rest of the nation. And then in the temple itself, there was an outer court where Gentiles were allowed. But there was a wall of division that separated them from the court of Israel, where only Jews were allowed. And then inside that court was another court where, the, where only priests were allowed. And then there in the center of that was the Holy of Holies, which was separated from the rest of that section by, by a heavy curtain. And in the middle of the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. It's where God's Shekinah glory appeared to Moses. 
And the only one that was allowed into that holy of holies was only the high priest. And that only once a year on the day of atonement. When he carried in the, the blood of the sacrifice to atone for his sins and for the sins of the people. And that high priest actually wore bells on his garments so that others, the other priests who were outside could hear the, the tinkling of the bells and know that while he was in there, he was still alive, that God had not struck him down for some unrepentant sin in his heart. And he actually had a rope tied around his ankle so that if that were to happen, the other priests could, could pull his dead body out without having to go in to the Holy of Holies themselves. Beloved, this is a picture of the holiness of God and what it requires to, to, what it requires to approach this holy, holy, holy God. But I fear that, that in our culture, in, even in Western Christianity, by and large, the concept of the fear of the Lord has been largely lost. And that people tend to approach God as though he were not holy. That they're doing the same sins that God indicted Israel for in Psalm 50, 21. These things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. The charge there is of trying to bring God down to our level as though he were not the holy God. And the so-called God that is worshipped by many, and I would, would argue that even in many churches, by many professing Christians, looks more like Santa Claus than the holy God of the Bible. They see him as some sort of kindly old man that the worst he's going to do is to maybe not give you something good in your stocking if you've been naughty. This could not be any further from the biblical God, the Holy One of Israel. God does not overlook our sin. God abhors our sin, and not just the so-called big sins like homosexuality, adultery, and murder. God abhors our pride and our self-righteousness and our self-love. Even our so-called righteousness is as filthy rags before him. Jesus said that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength and to love your neighbor like yourself. We can't do that for even one second. We can't. We can't. God in his holiness is completely separate from sin. He hates it and he must punish it. Otherwise, he would not be holy and he would not be just. 
Our sin is not just a mistake. It's not just an indiscretion. Just indiscretion. It is a declaration of war against the holy God. Now, the unregenerate don't really believe in the holiness of God. They think that somehow God's love is going to outweigh his holiness. And this, this really just amounts to wishful thinking. And really, it's a matter of, of making God in their own image. So their faith is idolatrous. And in fact, in reality, even unbelievers don't forgive. They can't forgive. They can't forgive. It requires the Holy Spirit. Forgiveness is foreign to their character. They haven't experienced it, and they can't offer it. But a true believer knows. A true believer knows his or her unholiness. A true believer knows how much he or she has been forgiven of. And then joyfully, gladly, eagerly pours out forgiveness to other people. That's why Jesus said, if you do not forgive, you will not be forgiven. Because, beloved, if you do not forgive, you are not forgiven. If you have experienced the grace that God has poured out in Christ, you will forgive because it is now a part of who you are in Christ because you have his Holy Spirit in you, working in you, giving you the, the, the desire and the ability to do what you could never do in your flesh. But God must punish sin. He must. All sin will be punished. It will either be punished in Christ on the cross or each sinner, each unrepentant sinner will bear their wrath on their heads and God will lead them into eternal hellfire where the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Last Sunday, as I was, was just walking across the parking lot, headed home after church, and just thinking about how hot it was, just for that, that brief second, as I, I did the 30-second walk across the parking lot, and it hit me. that any heat, any burning that we can experience is nothing compared to the holy wrath of a holy God. And that those that experience God's holy hellfire will have no hope of escape from it ever, ever. And that's what it means to sin against a holy God. So where does that leave us? Where does it leave us? Every one of us here, we know that we are sinners. And if you don't know, ask your husband or wife. Ask your children. Ask your coworkers. Ask the Lord. So we know that we have no holiness 
by which we could approach a holy God. In Exodus 3, when the Lord appeared to Moses out of the burning bush, he called Moses by name and said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And the Lord said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Beloved, whenever we approach the Lord, we also are standing on holy ground. But even though the Lord is holy and utterly above us, he calls us to him. He calls us to exalt the Lord our God and to worship at his footstool. Holy is he, Psalm 99.5. But we just saw that, that God is completely separate from sin, that he must punish sin. And it's not a matter of God hating the sin and loving the sinner. God hates those who sin against him and refuse to come to repentance. Psalm 5, 4 to 6 says, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful will not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lives. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty thirsty and deceitful men. So how do we approach God? How do we approach this holy God, sinners though we be? When we see him, it magnifies our sinfulness. It magnifies our unholiness. So think again for a moment about Isaiah's response from Isaiah chapter 6. In God's light, he saw his darkness. He saw his unholiness, and he knew that he could not approach the Holy One. But see there in verse 6 of Isaiah 6 that God provided the remedy. God provided the remedy. One of the seraphim flew to Isaiah and touched his mouth with a live coal from the altar and said in verse 7, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is is atoned for. God has atoned for Isaiah's sin. And Isaiah's sin was ultimately atoned for in the same way that our sin is atoned for. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, the Holy Lamb of God. And it is only on this basis on the basis of Christ's holiness, of Christ's sacrifice, that we can approach the holy God. So the the, the best way to see God's holiness is in the cross of Christ. Just as the cross of Christ is the best way to see all of God's attributes. For it is in the cross of Christ that we see how holy God is and how much he hates sin, our sin, your sin, my sin. I was listening to a sermon by C.J. Mahaney the other day talking about, about the danger of legalism. And in the sermon, he was talking, he was mentioning a a story about a a conference speaker who had had an encounter with a woman who 
came up to her weeping after the, after the session, weeping because she had had an abortion and was just feeling that the horrible weight had felt the guilt of that abortion and had not been able to, to break free from that. And, and this woman said to the, to, the, to the speaker, I don't know how I could have killed an innocent life. And the speaker said to the woman, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised that you did that. Because it's not the first time. It's not the first time that your sin led to the death of an innocent life. The only innocent life. Jesus Christ, God the Son. Beloved, our sin caused the death of Jesus Christ. But this is the same Jesus who is holding out his hands to us and bidding us come, calling us to him. And not just with, with a weak, powerless call, but with the omnipotent power of God, the Almighty. God's call is effectual. It accomplishes, it accomplishes that which he has ordained. So when we read in 1 Peter 15 and 16, please turn with me there to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. When Peter says, as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, for it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This you shall be holy is in the indicative mood. It is, it is a declaration. God has declared us holy. God has declared us holy, and he has made us holy by his effectual call. We see it too in, in chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 5, when we read, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer, offer sacrifices acceptable to God. And verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And also in Ephesians chapter 2, In Ephesians chapter 2, where we read that, that we are being called to be a, a holy structure, joined together, growing, growing into a holy temple in the Lord, being built together into a dwelling place for the Lord by the Spirit. This is from God's holy call. 
So in God's call, as his work of regeneration in our, in our hearts, our nature is changed. God has taken out from us a black and sinful, rebellious heart and has given us a holy, pure heart that loves God and wants to obey him. And as I explained last week as part of our study on the, on the omnipotence of God, this is the greatest display of God's power of making us holy, of making us holy. Tom Schreiner explains that calling does not merely mean invite, but conveys the idea of God's power in bringing people from darkness to light. Just as God's call creates light when there was darkness, so he creates life when there was death. And the holiness of their, of their lives, of our lives, is to match that of God, the God who called us. God's calling here refers to God's effectual call in which he infallibly calls people to himself. So the ground then for the command for us to be holy is also found in the not only the holiness, but also in the omnipotence of God. So it's, it's a command, but it's also a promise fulfilled. As I mentioned earlier, he is at work in us to will and to work according to his good pleasure. From, second, from Philippians 2, 12 and 13. And also in, in Ephesians 2, 10. For we are God's workmanship in Christ Jesus. God's workmanship in Christ for those good works which he has prepared in advance that we should walk in them. So God is working in us. He is the vine. Jesus is the vine. We are the branches. Apart from him, we can do nothing. But we can do all things through him who strengthens us. Beloved, the old man is dead. We are alive in Christ. We have been made alive by God. And as I've said to you before, you're dead, so live like it. You're dead, so live like it. But we need to ask the question here. I trust that, that for the vast majority of us here this morning, we are alive in Christ. But there are people here who week in, week out, hear the gospel proclaimed, yet refuse to come to salvation. They refuse to turn away from their sin and to turn to the Holy One of Israel. Why is that? Why is that? For us who are born again, it's infathomable. That we could proclaim the glories of the gospel to somebody again and again and again. That we can testify to the holiness of God slain for our sins. And that people would rather reject him and wallow in their futile self-righteousness. I've talked to people even this past week who know 
They know that if they were to die at this very moment, that they would go to eternal hell. But still, still they reject God. Why is this? Why do people fail to approach God at all or to approach him on his terms? I believe the Apostle John provides the answer for us in John 12, verses 39 to 41. Speaking here to people who had actually had the holy God right there in front of them, but still rejected him. The Pharisees had the holy scriptures. They had the Old Testament. But they missed God so completely that when he came, they sought to kill him. And they didn't just seek to kill him, they did it. Unless we think that we would be any different, apart from the grace of God in our lives, we would be there shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And as I said a few moments ago, our sin did crucify him. But these people rejected God. They could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Do you realize what Isaiah is saying here? He is saying that the holy, holy, holy one that he saw was the pre-incarnate Christ. Isaiah saw the pre-incarnate Christ and, and, and bowed in his presence. And here was the sinless Son of God walking through his, his wicked creation, yet somehow remaining completely unspotted by that sin. And this helps us to see what God requires of us. If you spend time in the pig pen, you are bound to get some mud on you. But Christ here is our example as he walked through his creation, yet remaining unspotted, remaining holy in the midst of his wicked creation. Now his creation was, it wasn't created wicked, it became wicked because of the fall. But he came into his creation because he had a mission. He knew what he was coming to do. Brothers and sisters, he has given us a mission. He has called us to live holy lives in the midst of creation so that we would be like, like lights in a dark place, like a city on a hill. I was just talking to one of our neighbors across the street who last night who is an unbeliever and says, you know, I'm really not into that religious stuff. But do you realize that she sees what is going on here when we walk out of this place? And she, she acknowledges that something different is going on here. She sees the difference just when, when we're walking back and forth to our cars and talking after the service. 
And likewise, Agnes said to me a few weeks ago that she can feel the difference in this place. And the difference is the love of God being poured out in our hearts. As we have, been, as we have encountered the holy God and come away changed and live out that love in each other's lives, showing God to be the holy one that he is. When people see that, when they see you walking in holiness, when they see you loving people who are difficult to love, you are exalting the Lord as holy before their eyes. That's evangelism. Jesus said in John 13, by this you others will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. J.C. Ryle, in his excellent book, Holiness, defines holiness as the habit of being of one mind with God. And our standard here is God's holiness. He explains that, that the holy man will endeavor to shun every form of sin and will keep every known commandment. He'll strive to do so. He will strive to be like Jesus Christ. But Ryle says that holiness cannot save us. For holiness cannot put away sin. It, it cannot cover iniquities. It cannot make satisfaction for transgressions or pay our debt to God. He says that the white robe which Jesus offers and faith puts on must be our only righteousness, the name of Christ, our only confidence, the Lamb's book of life, our only title to heaven. So when, when God tells us to be holy as he is holy, we're not talking about sinless perfection here. We're talking about living as people whose desires have been changed, who have come face to face with God, who, who have his power at work in their hearts. Beloved, I see this in your lives. I see this week by week as you build into each other, as you, you talk to each other about the things of God, and as you exhort one another to love and good deeds, as you help each other in practical areas, as you seek to serve people who can't or won't return the favor. Beloved, these are all things that are happening in our hearts because we have been acted upon by the Holy God. So I'd encourage us as we go out into the world this week to be conscious of the fact that we are always living before the Holy God and that we will train ourselves, train our minds to know that we are always in his holy presence. And then to seek by his grace and his glory to, to live according to his will, to love according to his will. Let's pray.